Welcome to the Theater of the Midnight Sun, the 21st century stage for stories, with your host and writer, Michael McGee. This is Michael McGee, and at this venue you'll hear stories of mystery, history, fantasy, farce, sci-fi, spy-fi, the everyday, and the absurd. And pretty much all will be performed by a bunch of regular Joes, just friends and colleagues who in their mild-mannered day jobs are everything from accountants to winery consultants. None of whom, including your host, have a day of experience on the stage, and boy does it show. So hold on tight for the next story on this, The Theater of the Midnight Sun. Petey, Sergeant T, and Nab drive into the outskirts of Baltimore to follow a lead that seems to connect two bizarre yet seemingly unrelated cases in episode three of Bluebirds and Dead Canaries. It wasn't until PDT and I were in the squad car and on the way to our next port of call that T started in with a few questions. Nab, back at Ham's place, why'd you ask if we'd been watching the house? Some things were missing inside. Missing? How could you tell? Ham was what, 76, 77? Yeah, so? And there was no prescription medication? No vials of pills in the medicine chest? Nothing at all? Even on the nightstand? You're right. Nothing for the Addisons and no painkillers either? Even after this painful hip replacement you told me about? Either Ham had suddenly become the healthiest senior citizen on God's green earth, or somebody else beat us to his medicine cabinet. So you think he was taking something that caused him to go nuts? I don't know. That's why we're going to this Ashland Institute. The name was scribbled on one of the forms I found at Ham's place. Keep in mind, our young man Megan had his own medical history, too. The antidepressants, remember? It's a good bet someone was ordering them for him. And you think it might be the same place? Well, both of the deceased had the same blank white business card with them. It can't be a coincidence. Chances are the operators of the place didn't even know who Megan was. After all, you said he'd passed off a fake ID to the apartment manager. He'd probably done the same with them. Outside, it had started raining. Enough drops beating on our windshield for T to start the sonic wipers. Twenty minutes later, after leaving the city and its buildings behind, and rambling into the countryside and a hilly area with trees, we pulled up in front of the Ashland Institute. I'd never heard of the place before, but it was apparently important enough to warrant a windowless facade, its outsides a dark blue, like the Chesapeake Bay that lay just beyond it as if the building itself were meant to melt into the background like corporate camouflage. According to a sign posted in the parking lot out front, the building housed an outpatient clinic in back. In fact, there was no one in the front anyway, while its outer lights dimmed. Not that that was a big surprise, being it was after hours. So to hack it brought the car around back to where a light lit up a small back entrance. The rain was coming down harder now, giving the air a slight chill and we piled out and walked up toward the door. As we got within range, a larger beam flipped on from under the glass walkway, similar to the illuminated doormats I'd seen at several houses. I felt strange for a few seconds, kind of tingly, and I realized suddenly we'd just been scanned. 
probably with a device similar to the one Gypsum had used to check Megan's corpse. Just the same, if the Ashland Institute knew we were there, nobody inside cared enough to appear. Some lighted buttons formed a small column next to the door, with a slot beside them like the kind you see for withdrawals at some of those old bank machines. Petey tried the door, but it was locked. So T pushed the top button on the lighted column, which had speaker vents next to it. Yes? Police. Oh, wait a moment, please. I'll send somebody to the door. We'll be here. Minutes later, a woman appeared. A big blonde bear of a gal. A couple inches taller than Tehacket, who was a head taller than me to begin with. Her eyes were bright, yet soft. She wore a white lab coat, but carried herself more like an administrator than a lab technician. She smiled sweetly through the glass door, her hair fluffed up and feathered back, a pair of modest earrings in place. Can I help you, gentlemen? Tehacket didn't say anything, forcing her to open the door instead. She didn't seem to mind, a pleasant smile on her. Baltimore PD, I'm Officer Tehacket. We're here to ask some questions. Mind if we come in? Oh, I'm sorry. Given her demeanor in the now pouring rain, I have expected her to offer us cups of hot chocolate and a place to warm our feet by the fire. Instead, she said, I'm afraid you'll need a warrant for that. Have a pleasant night, officers. And she closed the door just as gently as before, walking off and not looking back. And that was that. I blinked a bit, amazed it had taken all of 20 seconds for us to essentially be tossed out on our asses. I almost laughed. To hack it, too which was saying something. <laughs> Funny. What's that, T? A bouncer with perfume. The next night, while Tehacket worked on getting a warrant for the Ashland Institute, I had dinner with Petey and my sister, Elle, at their place in Idlewood but I had accepted my sister's invitation to dine with ulterior motives in mind. My job had kept me late, more fallout from the nightmare cipher I'd been assigned by Hempstead, so Elle ended up chowing on macaroni and cheese with her kids hours earlier. Petey usually never ate dinner, unless it was five or six bowls of cereal, so it was dinner for one for me, my usual really. Even then, the Ashland Institute remained heavy on my mind, and part of the reason I'd agreed to subject myself to my sister's idea of quote-unquote food was to ask Elle some questions that were long overdue. After our previous night's visit to the Ashland Institute, I remembered something about the place, a faint, unsettling thing that had been curled up in the back of my mind the last ten years. And it was that haunting memory that had suddenly made the case hit home for me. Unfortunately, I couldn't remember all of what I knew, or rather, I'd never really had all the details to begin with. But L had the answers. The problem was that the subject matter was super touchy, so I'd have to proceed with caution. For the moment, that meant trying to focus on her, um, dinner. L was currently busy in the kitchen with Petey, while I sat in the dining room, more or less playing with my food. On the plate before me was Hungarian goulash, I'm using its clinical name here. Made with macaroni, turnips, pickle relish, and way, way, way too much pepper. 
L. I suppose this invite tonight is really just to inflict this new surprise dish of yours on me? I feel like one of those old food tasters for the Emperor, where every bite might be my last. <laughs> L always seemed to be laughing. In truth, she had an abundance of virtues. She was never gossipy, never vindictive, and almost completely without guile, making me feel bad sometimes simply being around her. Indeed, of the two of us, I was definitely the sibling who indulged in the more sour thinking. The grumbler, as she called me. With her Myrnaloy eyes and Cleopatra-like quaff of black hair, Elle was also pretty much fearless, except for when it came to one thing. Needles. She hated shots. Absolutely hated them. I remember this once when I had accidentally cut her with a rusty paint can lid I'd been pretending was a frisbee. We'd had to go to the hospital to get her a tetanus shot. She was all of eight and she screamed bloody murder. And they hadn't even given her the shot yet. But still it just went on and on, this pathetic ear-splitting yell for a quarter of an hour. I finally just couldn't take it anymore and told my mom I'd wait out in the hall. I ended up walking all the way over to the other side of the hospital and I could still hear her screaming. It took another 20 minutes before they finally got the syringe into her. And afterward, the nurse came up to my mom and sweetly told her that the hospital never wanted to see Elle again. As her brother back then, I kind of seconded that opinion most times. But thank heavens she, and me too, hadn't had to go through the various rounds of inoculations that kids had had to go through in ages past. For the last 50 years, modern medicine had been able to impress children with inoculations while still in the womb. The vaccines prompting their immune system to kick in early so the children were protected even from their first days. Which frankly wasn't just a wonderful breakthrough for children everywhere, but considering L, a wonderful breakthrough for hospitals too. I heard some giggling and a couple of playful smacks out in the kitchen, a few of them of the smoochy kind. Even burdened with a couple of munchkins, two cats, a golden retriever and one squawking parrot, Petey and my sis remained overly frisky, sickeningly so, occasionally forcing me to insist that they cease and desist from the incessant kissy face whenever I was around. Just the same, whatever else I could say about him, Petey was doting, one of the best hubbies I knew, and a real sugar daddy when it came to Tam and Miles, their twin boy and girl, being as sweet as one of my candies. Make that a few minutes. <laughs> oh, brother. Hey, curb the hormones, will ya? And Petey, get your butt in here. I need to talk to you. It took another half minute, but Petey finally emerged, plopping down in the chair beside me. Nab, your sis is still hot to trot. I swear, it's like she can't never get enough, especially in the sack. Man, she wears me out most times. Petey, that's my sister you're talking about. It's hard enough keeping her food down without the blue commentary, okay? Why don't you just start talking about my mom and one of her old boyfriends knocking it out of the park? Well, your mom was pretty hot back when we were all at college together. Me and the guys used to love it whenever she dropped by the dorm. Okay, dinner over. What, lost your appetite now? Yeah, and Petey's gonna lose a couple of teeth. Before I could start in with some real questions for Petey, which would hopefully raise Elle's interest enough that I could ask her the questions I needed to. The phone rang. Elle picked it up, and after a quick exchange, handed it off to Petey. 
I could already tell it was to Hackett, and by the time Petey hung up, it was obvious T had more bad news. Let me guess, Petey. Sarge can't get a warrant. No kidding. He was completely stonewalled. The judge says his hands are tied, but T didn't get the feeling the guy was pushing too hard, so he's going to try another way. But he's not too hopeful on that score either, is he? No. There was something else, too. Something's wrong, Nab. Don't know what it is, but T didn't exactly sound right. Like he's on the hot seat from going after the warrant? Yeah. Maybe worse. I don't know. Worse? We had apparently touched a nerve. It just meant that my little one-on-one with L was even more important now. Whether she liked it or not, I needed some info about an old family mystery. One that had been taboo for over a decade with us. Just then, Tam and Miles came running in from the living room, the family's golden retriever at their heels. The dog, named Spotty, due to his incidents with the carpet, was wagging his tail so happily that tiny little dog hairs were soon drifting about on the air currents around me, some undoubtedly scheduled to make landfall in my food. Yet further reason for me not to finish my meal. The kids started bartering for TV privileges. Apparently homework was in the way, but Elle laid down the law being a stickler about studies. She was a teacher herself, of underprivileged inner-city kids, and knew firsthand just how important a good education was, as did I. In a minor compromise, Elle gave Tam and Miles each a handful of cookies from a box with an all-too-familiar red triangle on it. For ages now, ballparks, schools, museums, auditoriums, and whatnot had changed their names to reflect their chief corporate endorsements, whether it was Bank One Ballpark in Arizona or the AT&T Concert Hall in San Francisco. Following suit, several smaller cities across the nation, those that had been struggling financially, had signed deals with various corporations to change their names as well, in lieu of annual funding. Thus, Prairie Hall, Nebraska was renamed Exxon, Nebraska, Summersville, Tennessee became IBM. Jasmine, Alabama turned into R.J. Reynolds. Lincoln County, Montana became Procter & Gamble. The same incentives were offered to families, those who were too poor to afford real homes, good schools, decent clothes, if they had a child and wanted the same opportunities for their children as those of the middle class, they could name their child after a corporation that offered monetary support in exchange. In turn, their families could rise up out of the urban ghettos, their children escape the violence and the drugs, actually go to college, not live their lives in debt and squalor. Part of the deal, though, was that the child's grade point average had to remain above a certain level, and that they had to live as exemplary a life as possible, since their name was a company trademark. Participation in school clubs and community service groups was a given for the individual, part of the quote-unquote best foot forward idea that the companies drummed into the children. If the grade points slipped below a certain level, or if the youths engaged in any criminal or juvie activity, their corporate sponsor could pull the funding, withdrawing their name in a nanosecond, and perhaps sue for breach of contract. And so Nabisco had funded my upbringing. Lockheed had sponsored L, or the single letter L as her nickname really was short for her aerospace engineering moniker. 
Legally, we'd never really had last names. Mine was a series of numbers, 67125. L's was another, reflecting the order in which so many others had been assigned the same names before us. We'd been told names like ours were really no different than, say, the millions of Roberts out there, the countless Susans. Nevertheless, it still felt like I'd been a walking sandwich board my entire life, a living, breathing ad. Whatever else I could say about it, it had given me a better life. It had allowed me the chance to more fully reach my potential. Tam and Miles still looked unhappy about the TV negotiations, but the momentary distraction of the cookies appeased them a bit, and after devouring a few, they ran off with the remaining treats to bury themselves in their books. Goodbye. Once you guys are done with your homework, then you can turn on the old Vic, okay? Hell, the Victory Network? You're gonna let them watch that crap? It's not so bad. Really? Nabby, honey, I don't much like it either. But if it means they'll finish their homework, they get their choice of whatever they want to watch. God help us. The old Vic was perhaps the most aggravating reminder of how great my differences were with my peers. The Victory Channel was the lowest in quality of all the networks and yet had had the highest ratings for nearly three decades, its numbers inching upwards every year. Little effort at all seemed to be put into the shows anymore. The writing was atrocious, the acting awful. In fact, one of its sitcoms, a rehash of ten others before it, which included a gaggle of recycled characters like a talking horse, a, a wacky redhead, and a beautiful genie named Janie, had been rated number one the last three years running, and not even Einstein could have figured out why. The show's myriad fans would simply reply, Oh, it just has a certain charm to it, full of warmth and innocence like childhood. As they say, guess there's no accounting for taste. Unfortunately for me, and so many others, society's tastes lately had not so much been on a precipitous slide as had tumbled off a cliff altogether, to the point where the Victory Channel could put on a test pattern and people would tune in. In truth, so many things I witnessed these days absolutely boggled me. The thinking of the masses, for instance, or the things they chose to care about, pretty much because every one of them seemed completely opposite of everything I viewed as important. All of which, in its own way, made for a lonely life for me. Or, perhaps more precisely, a lonely soul. In truth, I was really an outsider by my own choosing. Folks like Petey and so many others always wanted me to be part of their group, given they enjoyed my company and admired my insights, and so they kept trying to drag me into their inner circle. And even though I liked them, loved them even, and enjoyed the companionship, I just didn't want to belong. I couldn't. 
Rejecting their club made me feel like a misanthrope and a total snob, but the price was just too high. After all, everything they loved I found terribly shallow. They reveled in the same idiotic shows and magazines and no-talent personalities, cared about the same worthless, beyond-trivial things in life, and whenever I brought up something deeper, something more substantial, either they'd look at me like I was an alien life form, pretend to be interested a moment before changing the subject, or outright mock the things I regarded so highly. After a while, I just felt that if I had to be like so many of the people around me, and end up trying to be happy about so much that was wholly unsatisfying to the deepest core of me, I'd rather be lonely. So Nam, what's going on at the precinct? And don't mind me if I eat your leftovers. And how come you two look like you're part of some funeral procession? Hey, this goulash isn't bad. Could use more pepper, though. I practically spit out my drink. To my disbelief, L then produced a jar of blueberry jam and glopped some on top. Mm-mm. Uh, hate to break it to you, Petey, but uh, odds are your kids are never going to make it to adulthood. Aha, uh -huh. I swear, you're worse than Tam and Miles. Oh well, can't make you like it. Of course, if I put caramel sauce on it, the Army, Navy, Air Force, and Marines couldn't keep you away. I scrunched up my face at her, nodding, then shook my head in disgust. Mention of the caramels prompted me to unwrap another one on a mission to rescue my taste buds. I love Cherilisi's entire product line, of course, but it was a little disheartening to know that the company's name was like that of Haagen-Dazs. In other words, the title meant nothing and wasn't even Italian. It was just meant to sound like a fine Italian candy. In truth, Cherilisi's were plain old American sweets, from a factory in Arkansas, no less, with about twice the sugar in them for about six times the price. So what's got your undies in a twist? Ah, uh, Petey's latest case. A couple of accidental incidents, which resulted in the deaths of both people involved. And you think they weren't accidental? Oh, they could very well be, but somebody's trying to hide something. There's a connection between the two that doesn't sit well with us. And so we followed it up and got our butts kicked. We're 0 for 2 so far, counting T's latest defeat. So who's the big bad wolf this time? This was exactly the kind of lead-in I'd been hoping for. Patience was more than a virtue. It was a saving grace. Oh, it's some company out near Hawk Cove. The Ashland Institute. As I said the words, I studied Elle. She stopped chewing in mid-bite, her eyes flaring the slightest bit. I looked right at her for the next part of it. They've got a big dark blue building out by the bay. Ever heard of them? You know I have. Uh-huh. You want me to talk about Uncle Chaz, don't you? The thought had crossed my mind. Chaz had been basically a surrogate dad to us, given that our real father had run off when Mom got pregnant with Ellen me leaving her to hook up with another man at the last minute in a paper marriage so she could apply for corporate funding for the two of us. The corporations insisting that their beneficiaries come with dual parent families. 
Once our paper pop got his cut, though, he split too, leaving only Mom, Elle, and me, and Uncle Chaz, Mom's slightly black sheep brother. Chaz had been a sprite of a fellow with black hair on top that looked like he'd stuck his finger in an electric socket every morning, and a bulging waistline that reflected his love for butter pecan ice cream and spicy Creole cooking. But when Mom got into a bus accident back when I was in fifth grade, it had been Chaz who'd taken us in for nine months, helping nurse Mom back to health, struggling along with his own job, and meanwhile tackling the role of father for us. He'd been our only real taste of it, and had been wonderful to us. So much so that we'd sometimes secretly called him Dad when no one else was around, just to try out the sound of it on our tongues. L, when Chaz was dying of throat cancer, you visited Ashland, didn't he? Yeah. And they gave him some medicines, things not yet on the market, right? Mm-hmm. Elle, I know you don't like to talk about this. Such good detecting, Nabby honey. And so? So what? They gave him some medicines. But what happened? He just... He had some mood swings is all. What did he do? Proposition you? That would have been a slight improvement. Meaning what? <sighs> Look. He liked to cook, okay? Cook? Cook. Animals. Like, around the house animals. He cooked his cat. Or fried it would be a better word. Some batter, a skillet, you know the routine. He fried mice he found. The neighbor's hamsters, cockroaches. He trapped a skunk and ate it. Even cooked his parakeets, constantly saying, tastes like chicken, with this manic sort of Sweeney Todd gleam to him. <clears throat> well, this certainly gives me new respect for your cooking. He even cooked... Pillow. You're kidding. Pillow? Who's Pillow? It was nothing, Petey. Petey, Pillow was Elle's old dog, a little white Pomeranian, cute little guy, kind of quirky. Whenever anybody'd sneeze, he'd get up and head to another room like he was afraid of catching something. Elle had told me he'd run away. Chaz didn't make you eat him, did he? No. It wasn't like some dumb horror movie. God. I was in hysterics over it, bawling my eyes out. I wanted to kill him, but I knew he wasn't in his right mind. It was horrible. He just couldn't help himself. Some days were better, some worse, all while the cancer took its toll more and more. But every time I'd come by, he'd have the skillet out with some new fried friend. I figured it had to be the medicines that were all doing it. They were hurting more than helping. But Chaz always denied it. We even fought about getting rid of the pills a couple times. Real screaming matches. You're kidding. That doesn't sound like him either. Tell me about it. <sighs> Sorry to bring it all up again, Al. It's just, we've got an overriding interest in Ashland right now. Yeah, well, I had an interest in them back then, too. Even did some checking up on them. What'd you find out? Not much, unfortunately. One thing I did discover, though, was that they're associated with some PR firm. Hedison L. White. 
Ashland's one of their subsidiaries. Edison Elwhite, what's that? Well, they're big, first off. Super big. And handle PR for some of the largest multinationals in the world. Even some minor governments. You remember that scandal involving the Sele government in Micronesia? Where hundreds of children were reportedly kidnapped by the rebels they were battling there? And remember how it all turned out to be faked in the end? That it was just their way of trying to get other countries to back the Sele government in their civil war? That was the work of Hedison Elwhite. Pretty insidious bunch. And pretty slick, too. In fact, they're the same group our government goes to whenever they want to push folks like us towards a little war of their own making. Or anything else they realize will be a tough sell. Of course, Hedison Elwhite refuses to release their client list. Very, very secretive outfit. They say they're under contract to their clients not to, and that there's no legal reason to do so. After all, if lovely young ladies like myself, and cranky brothers who are picky about their cooking, knew what they were up to, their PR efforts would fall completely flat, wasting zillions of dollars, and probably having the opposite effect. All their lies and tricks turning people against their clients. Thinking of Uncle Chaz again, I'd begun steaming a little inside. Suddenly, I truly did want answers to all this, even if it put my real job on the line. Petey, I want another crack at Ashland. I say we head back there again tonight. They ain't gonna let us in. They don't need to know anything about it, Petey. What do you mean by that? Just how are you gonna get in? I think I figured out a way. And it's not exactly legal, is it? Oh, it's legal enough. Getting in anyway. Trust me, I have a feeling they'll let me in whether they like it or not. Well, the Hackett ain't gonna like it. T doesn't need to know about it either, does he, Petey? No, no. I gotta tell T. No, you don't. Yeah, right. And what are you talking about anyway? I thought you don't like helping us much. I'm making an exception. Plus, I'm looking on the bright side of things. If Ashland's as powerful as L says, there's a good chance this might be the last time I do help you guys. Or help anyone with anything. Uh-uh. No way. Hey, you're always dragging me along on your little outings. Time to return the favor. But this time, you're staying out of it, okay? I'm working solo this gig. All you have to do is drop me off. I'll call you when I'm done. You can just kick back and watch the old Vic with the kids. L, how come you're not saying anything? I don't know, Petey. Maybe because I want to find out what happened to Uncle Chaz, too. And so ends Episode 3 of Bluebirds and Dead Canaries. The cast included Tom Fahey as Petey, Maggie Irvin as Elle, Rick Sallow as Sergeant DeHackett, and in a performance that would have inspired Van Gogh to lop off both his ears, I, Michael McGee, played the part of Nab. The music used here was by artists like the incredible Jamie Sieber, Devin Anderson, Little Plastic Stars, DJOC, Andrew Potterton, Lee Mattiford, Tyler Riggs, and Clouseau. And were courtesy of websites like Magnatune, Gemendo, SoundSnap, Podsafe Audio, Internet Archive, and the Podshow Podsafe Network at podshow.com. Some of the tunes used here, like Do It Again, Follow the Crowd, After the Rain, and Rimsky Korsakov's Song of India, 
date back to from 1914 to 1922 and were performed by Paul Whiteman and his orchestra and Irving Berlin. Most of the sound effects heard here were courtesy of SoundSnap at SoundSnap.com. A full rundown of the musicians and song or composition names can be found on the music page of the Theater of the Midnight Sun website at theaterofthemidnightsun.podbean.com. So that's it for this episode. Check back for episode four of Bluebirds and Dead Canaries. Or hit that old subscribe button or follow us to be notified about the release of the next episode. Until then, this is Michael McGee saying no need to wake Shakespeare or bother Mark Twain, and no use in worrying Broadway or even your local high school thespians. It's just us, the theater of the Midnight Sun. <laughs>